I've been spending some time in the last couple of months talking with younger libertarian and conservative people um, who've studied actually quite a lot of, of uh, Sanders' uh, speeches on college campuses. That's Ingrid Gregg, chairman of the board at the Archbridge Institute, talking about some of the common ground she sees between young conservatives and supporters of Bernie Sanders. This is the second episode of a two-part series on a panel about politics and journalism hosted at the Howenstein Center's Conservative Progressive Summit. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. In our last episode, you heard three writers and editors on the left debate and discuss with three writers and editors on the right. In this episode, you'll hear the second part of that panel conversation. We begin with the left's response to the right's remarks about the possibility of fusion or of coalition building, both within the ranks of one's political movement as well as outside those ranks. In this episode, we first hear from Bhaskar Sankara of Jacobin Magazine, then from Sarah Leonard and David Marcus at The Nation. Then on the right, we hear from Ingrid Gregg, and then Winston Elliott of The Imaginative Conservative and Dan McCarthy of The American Conservative. We hear from these speakers. We also get some good questions from the audience, including one from David Sahat, past guest on the podcast and host of Mind Pop. So stay tuned. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. My thought is based on you know 19th century rationalism. Um, so, but as, as far as fusionism, you know, so I think it is a model for, you know, how do you. We, I think especially young people think of conservatives as being always uh, the dominant force, but I think if you look in the scope of U.S. history, the scope of the 20th century, then you see a certain form of liberalism is in fact being dominant. Um, and I look at you know, people like George C. Nash and others that were locked out of liberal academia. Um, so when the left seeks, seeks refuge in academia um, in various forms and, and see the preservation of its presence in academia as being an up necessity because otherwise we'll lose the left entirely, you know, I look at the way that conservatives have been able to survive by building their own institutions through think tanks and foundations um, and other avenues. And I think about the history of, of the left and the workers' movement, which is largely a history outside the United States. But I think of Karl Kotsky, I think of Bernstein, I think of Luxembourg and Lenin, you know, agree or disagree with these people, they were no academics. You know, they developed their theoretical thought through mass parties that had its own organs that generated, um, like, ideas. Um, so that's, that's more what I was getting at, creating institutions outside and being able to build an opposition movement, also being able to see the, the, the long haul, being able to see how certain defeats can, in fact, be more productive than, than victories, right? So, I, I, you know, this is a cliche, of course, and more than half of the National Review, you know, didn't actually, uh, you know, think that this was going to usher in an inevitable victory ever. But, you know, a um, Goldwater defeat in '64 is more productive than a, a Rockefeller dis- defeat, and certainly um, a Republican was going to lose in that election. Um, um, so, as far as how it relates to Jacobin itself, we can't form a fusionist project partially because we don't even have the the elements of it. So this is more Jacobin is more of a pre-project, right? So can you have fusionism if 30 or 40% of the right in, in the 50s are virtuous? Like, no. And that's essentially our corollary on, on the left. So I think part of what we're, we're meaning to do is kind of preserve a set of ideas and also you know, defend, defend certain ideas that I think were unfairly um, under attack. For better or for worse, um, 
the left conquered around half of the world in the past um, century. Uh, if you, so the workers movement, in other words, I think spawned three different camps. It spawned the forces of, of, of social democracy, uh, which of course ruled swaths of Europe and elsewhere. It helped spawn national liberation movements that played a major role in building post-colonial states for, uh, with a mixed record. I think the record of social democracy, of course, is far better. And then, of course, it, it spawned Bolshevism and later you know, Stalinism for largely ill. Um, but the actual form that we used, the form of building mass parties, was the thing that did this. Um, and when I was coming to the left, I was encountering a left that was increasingly anarchist and inflected. So in other words, we were told to throw away the form of the party. We were told to throw away the agency of the working class in favor of um, you know, kind of forms of more decentralized, non-hierarchical organization that to me have yielded nothing but you know, some, some nice urban food co-ops. Um, <laughs> so so that, that was kind of initially the, the thinking. So I think of it as a, as a pre-project. But part of what we want to resuscitate is, in fact, a universalism. So in other words, uh, a lot of the left today, the left, let's say, inflected by post-colonial theory and whatnot, would say that there's no way that I can understand, um, much less you know, David can understand what a Bengali peasant wants or, or feels like day to day. You know, I would say, on the face of it, that's ridiculous. Because a Bengali peasant you know, is a person. And people want, generally, the same things. They want security. They want prosperity. They want a chance of making a better life for them and their family. And I think, unless you understand the world in those terms, it's impossible to actually build politics. A majoritarian politics meant to, one, define the many and define the few, and in our, in our version of politics, unite the many against the few once we, once we define them. So I, I think that's Jackman's role, to kind of keep alive these ideas, and not to win over people on the left, but to kind of flood them out. Um, you know, right now, we're still a very small publication. We have a circulation a paid circulation of only 40,000. And to be honest, in the past six weeks, it's basically like it's leveled out. I think I'll reach 50, and then that'll be the plateau. I, if you caught me two months ago, I would have uh, I, I would have came here in a helicopter or something. I, I, was, uh, I was much more ambitious in the initial post-Trump um, you know, bump that we got. Um, but, but I think there is an important purpose in keeping alive these kind of core premises and trying to win over people, and also to relate to the mainstream and relate, relate to American society without kind of capitulating to it. Um, to some degree, of course, you can't convince people that you have a better way for a society to function if you have disdain for that society. So in other words, um, I think that a lot of Jackman contributors, a lot of Marxists in general, um, dislike the society that they live in a lot less than a lot of people who are uh, superficially more kind of agitated against it, but fundamentally don't have the same kind of deep critique of it. Um, so I think that's some of our purpose, to try to build a politics that is both radical, but also majoritarian. Um, and, and I think in many ways, despite the flaws of the, the campaign, uh, Bernie Sanders did show us that there is, at the very least, um, a form of social democratic politics that is based on a class antagonism that could win majoritarian support. And I think nothing else that has merged on the left has showed us that possibility. Um, like I said, I'm still very um, doubtful in the prospects to build a coalition that could govern, because it is ultimately easier to govern um, 
at least in the interests of capital or some segments of capital than it is um, against it. So when people talk, in other words, about the decline of the mass party in Europe um, and elsewhere as an apolitical kind of crisis of democracy, it really is a crisis of the left. Because right now, Theresa May is about to win an election um, with you know, the support of maybe even the high 40s in Britain, and conservative membership has continued to, to plunge because they don't quite need the same forms the way, the way we do. We need to do something quite a bit complex, which is to tell people whose livelihoods are dependent on capitalism, who are dependent on the profitability of businesses and firms in their areas, they need to fight, of course, for day-to-day -day demands, but also they need to ultimately fight to overcome the system that they see and, in fact, correctly see as that goes hand in hand with their prosperity. So it is a very different task than what conservatives have to do. Um, it is arguably an impossible you know, task, but that's why I like to at least um, you know, kind of rest my, my mind by thinking in you know, um, uh, decades and centuries and not uh, months and years. Yeah, David, David and Sarah, any thoughts on this, um, this idea of uh of fusing various constituencies on the left and whether you look to the history of conservatism in any manner as being instructive on that question. Um, yeah, um, so I mean, since we're admitting embarrassing affinities for conservatism, um, <laughs> the um, I, I like permanently checked out the volume of Buckley's columns from my college library because like no one wanted it apparently for four years, which I took as a vindication as well, I guess. But um, because of the sort of um, the energy and the creativity, but also the, the unapologeticness of those columns, which at the time was um, quite striking. Um, and and I, I enjoyed his, his chutzpah. Uh, very much. Um, so, um, <laughs> sorry. I, so, what I would add is is this. So, the challenge on the left, which of course Bosco referred to, is that the right has all the money, so we have to have all the people. It's a lot harder, I would argue, um, and one could argue it's never quite been done successfully. Um, and one of the th challenges that we're facing right now, of course, is that there is a large constituency of dissatisfied people in the US, as you can see from the fact that most people just didn't vote. Um, so when we say Donald Trump has this huge mandate from the American people, what does that say about us? That simply isn't true. Um, so we have this sort of rich terrain, but the challenge of organizing is immense. Um, and so a lot of what we're doing right now is just growing the number of people that are actually in organizations from which they can receive training, political education, from which they can learn to go out and do their own political organizing. Um, what's wonderful about DSA growing the way it has, even though it's still extremely small, um, is that these are people who are coming in who have a sense that something is wrong, but maybe don't have a, a particularly strong analysis of what that is. They have a sense, they liked what Bernie was saying, they kinda wanna go down that path there. They seem, uh, what he says seems to explain their lives in a way that makes sense. Um, and in the same way that unions, back when they existed, used to do political education of their membership, and that's why people in union households were significantly more likely to vote for Democrats, um, 
bringing people into organizations right now is serving that function. So that's one part of what we're doing. Um, and there are gonna have to be a lot more of us and a lot more organizations before fusion is a tenable challenge. Um, but one thing that the left needs to grapple with in a substantial way, and always has, is race. And if you look at the makeup of DSA, it is like pretty white. Um, and if you look at one of the most influential and important movements to emerge in the last several years, it's the movement for black lives, right? Now, a, there's a lot in common between different strands of these movements um, left of center. So, um, for example, depending on which organization you're talking about within the movement for black lives, um, there's enormous affinity. So, um, the Black Youth Project 100, BYP 100, which started in Chicago, um, has a very strong class analysis, um, and they participated in getting rid of Anita Alvarez, a bad DA in Chicago, by coordinating with the teachers union there, among others. Um, that organization um, is a natural ally of an organization like DSA. DS, the platform that was put forward by the Movement for Black Lives has um, enormous affinity with what is put forward by DSA. Because of the different contexts from which these organizations emerge, um, the different languages they use to describe political analysis, um, as well as different social contexts, those organizations still have lots of distance between them, practically speaking. Um, and so a lot of the interesting work that's being done in, I would say, organizations like DSA is making sure that people who are coming in through that particular sort of left and getting that particular sort of political education are being dispatched to work on immigrants' rights issues or being dispatched to work on policing issues. Um, and so as to build trust within a left that is broader um, than even just you know the people who came in through the Sanders campaign who are important. If you look at Sanders, um, you know I love him to death. Uh, I would say on gender and race maybe had some strides to make, and he did during the campaign. Um, but one of the things that seemed notable to me was that the people who supported him from my generation have a much more natural fluency with those issues um, and with the reasons they matter for a class analysis than Bernie sometimes seemed to. Um, and so that generation coming up, I think, has a responsibility to really capitalize on that and make sure that the coalition we're building in America looks like America. And I think that's a big fusionist challenge for the left going forward, which has often been fragmented by disputes over so-called identity politics. Um, and I think that is what is going to create the power that we need. Historically, whenever white workers and black workers truly get together and get organized, that's when the hammer comes down. And that's because that's powerful. David, really quick, um, and then we'll yeah, do yeah. one more question, then we'll have a Q&A session. Uh, well, I, I think the left, in part because it's often been out of power, has been fusionist from the beginning. You think about the history of socialism, it's romantic, it draws from the romantic tradition and the enlightenment tradition, it draws from the liberal tradition and the revolutionary tradition. Uh, I think in the United States in particular, this fusionism has just been imbricated in what the left identity is. If, as Bhaskar argues, and I'd like to think that there's a persuasive case to make this, the abolitionists were some of the first radical leftists, they merged uh, an idea of free labor with the politics of anti-slavery. 
uh, they were taking two different critiques and finding ways to, to consolidate them. The, the populace, again, were doing something similar, and there was a social basis, too, industrial workers and farmers, the New Deal and the Popular Front. Again, there's a kind of left liberalism there and a merging of working and middle class uh, constituents. And I think, actually, the left today, for quite some time, it struggled. And I actually think the anarchism that was in its heyday in the 90s really spoke in a language that was not American uh, and was not persuading large numbers of people of its politics, which were inherently about the, the nature of American political economy, right? The, especially the anti-globalization movement. But I think if you think about, and you know, I, I really found this remarkable, um, being someone who really greatly admires Karl Polanyi and thinking about alternative forms of, of kind of socialist thought besides the, the Marxist tradition, People like Sanders and Warren are actually doing something of a fusionist politics themselves. Uh, Sanders speaks about healthcare education as rights. He's speaking, in, uh, granted you could even say he's just a New Deal liberal, but he's speaking in a language that is familiar to many of us. I think Warren also speaking in this language that is drawn from a Midwestern populism that could be right or left wing. Uh, and so I think the left has always been very good at being adaptive to thinking about how to convey politics that link into a tradition that's long-standing to the particular moment. I don't think it's, it's fully succeeded yet at a point where it can be a majoritarian movement. Uh, and I think Sarah has actually really highlighted some of the very critical fissures that, in my mind, didn't seem to be necessary because maybe a different uh, vehicle or messenger for a democratic socialism would have been more sensitive to some of these things rather than learning as the campaign went along. But I do think that we're in a moment where the left is, look, the left and right do draw from liberal traditions even when they're criticizing the center and criticizing liberalism. Most people on the left and right respect procedural democracy. I don't know actually if our president does, but I know that most people on the right probably do. And I know that most of my colleagues on the left do. And so I think it's more about finding ways to continue to bring new new things into the fusion as it, it grows. But I do think we're at a moment where there is this kind of synthesis or a dialectic taking place. So I actually would just invite people to come up um, and we can start the Q&A session. And then perhaps if you have responses to each other, you might work them into your answers to questions. Oh, Ingrid, do you have a quick? Well, I, sorry, not, not to take up more than just a minute, but I'm thinking particularly about the younger people and indeed the appeal that Bernie Sanders had to so many of the young. Um, I've been spending some time in the last couple of months talking with younger libertarian and conservative people um, who've studied actually quite a lot of, of uh, Sanders' uh, speeches on college campuses and basically asked them, you know, where, where do you see some possible areas of commonality for discussion? Um, and, and it's not that surprising in the sense that some of this is just sheer common sense, but some of the things uh, that I've been hearing from the young people, and it, it may just be worth um, putting out here, um, is that they're intensely interested in the practical application of ideas to daily life, and they do seek a kind of rejuvenation of problem solving uh, in the political context, in the constitutional order, um, to actually create opportunity for good jobs. And this is equally a concern on the right as on the left, I think. Um, a lot of discussion about what, what does the nature of economic growth and ec economic opportunity um, actually mean at the current moment? 
what can the left and the right sort of learn uh, from each other about those kind of discussions. There's also a very deep concern, I think, among a lot of young conservative libertarians, uh, people basically on the center right, about the extent to which debate has deteriorated into violence and that we are losing uh, the ability as a society, as a civil order, for constructive, genuinely tolerant debate. Um, there's a lot of concerns about mass marching being the gut reaction to a lot of what's going on. What do we do about channeling the anger on all sides to more constructive ends? Um, and the other thing uh, that I actually hear from European friends um, is, and this is sort of an interesting question just, just historically speaking, and, and actually it's come up uh, just a little while ago, uh, in terms of what, what has the fate of social democracy in Europe actually been and what lessons can be drawn from that in a North American context. Um, what does the evidence actually tell us? Why are um, there such divisive elections pending in the UK and in France? You know, what is this sort of moment that we're in in the Western world generally, not just, of course, in the United States? Um, and I think that these are, these are questions coming from all sides. Um, and it's, it's very helpful that the younger generation is taking this all very seriously. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I guess Ingrid just brought up something that actually has changed since uh, in the midst of and in the uh, result of the most recent election is we've spent more time talking about civility um, and the ability to have real conversation about issues as opposed to uh, sound bites and arguments uh, than we did uh, in previous years. And I think uh, one of the biggest challenges we have, and I, I, in just listening to what some of the things that were just said uh, uh, a moment ago, is I, I see that, uh, you know, screaming and, and signs, you know, uh, holding up signs that you can shake in front of a news camera, um, has a certain um, uh, visual effect that draws attention, but it's not persuasive. So the, part of the question we, I think we should be able to address between us is, well, first off, are we trying to just get our base angry and motivated? And if that's the case, then we should all yell at each other and call each other names because that's the thing the base seems to enjoy the most. But if we're trying to persuade the people that don't already agree with us, I think that demands an, a very different approach um, and for us, we want to spend more time trying to persuade people who might be open-minded uh, than we do uh, trying to just uh, get people to scream and be angry uh, at the opposition, which I don't think is really a viable approach. We can, we can go to questions. Yes, Professor Stana. Uh, I have a question about uh, fusion. Uh, and if I recall correctly, in the late 1960s, there was talk about uh, a fusion between uh, ultra-left uh, anarchist communes and uh, ultra-right anarchist communes. And I've heard recently some talk from people about uh, possibility or uh, perhaps a hope that uh, the Tea Party movement and the Occupy Wall Street movement would fuse. Do you think there's any uh, possibilities there Um, yeah, in the 1960s, uh, libertarians especially reached out and wanted to work with the left, particularly on anti-war issues. And I think that continues to be uh, an area of common ground between uh, certainly many libertarians, many conservatives, and uh, much of the left. 
Um, it, it does become difficult because depending on who is in office, you will see different degrees of anti-war support uh, coming from uh, either the left or the right. There is a certain modulation that occurs based on whether a Democrat or a Republican is in office most of the time. Um, however, clearly there are people who are very principled who you know, take a firm stand against uh, you know, disastrous foreign policy. And uh, you find that on both the left and the right. You found that in the 1960s with regard to the Vietnam War. And you found that uh, during the Bush era as well. And um, you know, there were not, um, not as many, uh, perhaps, uh, on the right who were aware of just how bad the uh, Iraq War was at the time. Some people actually on the right who were aware were not able to speak out because uh, sort of institutional controls and rigidity uh, of the, uh, the way the movement was structured it prevented people from speaking their consciences. And I think that's something that the right always has to be able to preserve, uh, whether it's under the uh, you know, Bush administration or whether it's under the uh, Trump administration. So uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, when in, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party, conceivably they could get together on certain anti-banking issues. Conceivably they could get together on a critique of perhaps uh, Federal Reserve policy. Um, but that hasn't happened, and it does seem to me that um, one of the fissures that always emerged whenever libertarians and progressives tried to work together was the fact that they do just have fundamentally different ideas, not only of economics, but of political economy. And uh, that you know, is so uh, constitutive of the outlooks of both libertarians and of uh, progressives that it prevents any kind of long-range amalgamation. So you can have it on uh, you know, issue to issue, but in terms of having something that fundamentally brings them together, it's very difficult. I just want to say briefly that I represent, I think, the fusionism that you guys were just talking about because I, I am both a former Bircher and a former Teamster. Um, and you guys uh, have been for one and against the other. So I think I've, I'm already representing a fusion of all things that you hate and love at the same time. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> um, I think we should not forget that the term alt-right was coined by Richard Spencer to disguise a form of sort of neo-Nazism. Um, so there's no common ground there. Um, and I think it's worth being definitive about that. Other forms of conservatism, I mean, I appreciate Daniel Larison's writing. I think a sort of anti-interventionist um, position potentially has overlap left and right. Um, and I think, um, to sort of return to something that was said earlier, I do want to be clear, there, there's been this sort of slippage where anytime people march, it's described as violent or like an aggressive reaction. I think, I find that bizarre. Like I, I don't see how marching is violent. It seems like the opposite to me. Um, and I also think it tends to operate on sort of a spectrum. So we're, the American media was very proud of Egyptians for nonviolently protesting until their president was deposed. There were police stations on fire. I think if that were happening here, it might be considered violent, but it's over there, so, you know. Um, I think it's worth keeping in perspective that there is a range of political dissent um, and that to declare it violent is to try to fairly stringently limit what dissent can look like in this country. Um, Further, I think when it comes to um, campus protest and that sort of thing, um, it's worth remembering, I think, for people on the left who your audience is. So it's not that there are strict principles about when you can and can't shout at someone who's speaking. It's are you trying to organize more people to agree with you? Um, and if you are, often, um, you know, if you have someone 
who has like pretty objectionable positions but will be in dialogue with you in some way, sometimes the best thing to do is to actually know their work and get up there and ask a particularly devastating question or to have everyone line up and ask them like 90 really devastating questions or for that matter to stand in front of them with an explanation of their views on a piece of paper, whatever. Um, that can be one way to do it. Um, the person who has been in the news most controversially, obviously, although not anymore since he nobody likes him anymore, is Milo. Um, and there you have a slightly different case where um, in, the, in his case, when he got up on stage, he would create direct threats to people in the audience. So he pointed at a transgender student and called them out by name um, and talked aggressively about them. And that, that's sort of unacceptable. And so when people get up and try to shut down that event, Honestly, um, that seems not only somewhat reasonable, but has some amount of public opinion on their side because of how disgusting the thing that Milo did was. I think what's important in all of these cases is that you wanna be thinking, okay, we have a bunch of left ideas. The purpose is not to convince Milo. I don't think Milo's coming over to our side. The purpose is not to convince Ann Coulter. The purpose is not to convince Charles Murray. I think he has a track record at this point. The point is to use them as platforms to communicate your ideas effectively to a large middle. And so whether your activities are doing that is the measure of whether you're doing the right thing. Um, and obviously, um, you know, terrible violence, like when a Milo supporter shot a Milo protester uh, is unacceptable. And I think it would go without saying outside of the bounds of what I'm talking about. Um, well, I, I, well, on the campus question, I agree with Sarah. I think there is a difference, and I think portions of the left are blurs between uh, racist persuasion and racist agitation. Um, I think racist persuasion is speech that should be protected. Racist agitation, in a certain sense, should not. Um, and, and I think it's dangerous in the left blurs that line, but I think it's also, um, you know, been overstated to what extent there is like, you know, gangs of leftist militants. You know, it's not, you know, it's not even like the new left in the 60s, in which case I might be with Adorno who was trying to lecture and was being bothered and just called the cops and like, you know, uh, you know, not, not necessarily uh, a, a completely unsympathetic, but I do think there is, there is a, I could see, of course, you know, the, the difference between the alt-right and these elements around Bernie, the difference between Tea Party and Occupy, you know, a lot of it relates to a worldview perspective that's rooted in, you know, their different class positions and also what they want at the level of political economy. You know, what they want as far as what kind of redistribution they want, what kind of control over socially created wealth would they like to, to see. So I think there is a fundamental difference there. Where there is maybe some small degrees of worrying, um, uh, what I think to be worrying overlap is that I think in this era of social media and the era that we're in now, there's a tendency to just speak to your, your base um, and just to be kind of provocateurs trying to rile up and excite your base. And I think you see that on both the left and the right. So I, I put it this way. Um, you know, I come from an anti-Stalinist tradition. I'm no great um, you know, friend of, of the legacy of even American um, you know, uh, Communist Party, which of course has a much better domestic track record um, than they did when they, they had state power abroad. But at their, their peak, 
of their power and influence in, let's say, the 1930s, they were, in a sense, hard at the core and soft on the edges. In other words, internally, they had a rigor, um, perhaps like a woodenness, in how they viewed the world, but they, they, they trained, they discussed one another, they, they had a sense of purpose, they had goals, and they had a worldview. But then, on the edges, they were soft. They were able to participate in broad mass fronts. They were able to communicate with hundreds of thousands and millions of ordinary people. I think, in a way, there's a tendency in a lot of the new left to be almost like the opposite. They're very hard on the edges. They're very hostile and aggressive to people who might not immediately share all their, their thoughts and beliefs. But at the core, if you talk to them, they have no idea actually what they want, what they believe in, and how they view the world. It's kind of my goal to um, create more of a left that's kind of the opposite. Of course, not to the ends of, of, of supporting um, Uncle Joe in the Moscow trials, but to the ends of creating you know, a broad, expansive view of, of democratic socialism and making it relevant in the 21st century. I think we need a clear worldview. We need to have rigorous debate and discussion um, and education internally. But at the same time, we need to kind of embrace with open arms people we, who we could possibly win over. And when we engage with people we disagree with, we need to be clear that, like Sarah was saying, our goal is not necessarily win them over, but our goal is to look good in front of you know, an audience when we're, we're, we're doing it. And, and Irving Howe, who founded um, Dissent, used to refer to um, actually the communists in the 30s as kind of the brilliant masquerade. And his question basically was, can we create um, browderism without browder? In other words, can we do a lot of the things that the communists did well in that period? relate to and talk to ordinary Americans, embrace certain parts of this nation's uh, tradition and history, but without necessarily doing so for you know, sinister ends, but doing so because we you know, firmly believe that there can be some sort of you know, emancipatory path out of, out of, um, you know, from, from the basis of the society that we, we live in. So one, one final, I think we're approaching overtime, so one final question from Professor Sahat, yes. And then just quick responses. Oh, we do. I'm sorry. And that, yeah, two two final qu quick questions and then quick responses. Okay, quick question. Um, I'm I'm surprised in a certain sense at the direction that the conversation has taken and the kind of deep disagreement that has emerged. And one of the things that I would think that the left and the right, or maybe far left or far right, and uh, can agree upon is 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 trade policy and uh, economic nationalism. And I thought this, uh, perhaps wrongly, I'm seeing the shaking heads, but let me, let me, at the risk of unmasking myself as a Clintonian triangulator or something, um, it, it, it does seem that, that the hostility to NAFTA, the hostility to free trade, the desire to rewrite uh, trade agreements in the favor of, uh, well, labor, I assume, on the left, or some kind of more beneficial arrangement on the right, would seem to be something that, that the left and the right can come around, even if they would have different ultimate ends in renegotiating the, those agreements. Agree or disagree? Um, well, I'll, I'll jump in. <laughs> I think there, there certainly are commonalities between the left and the right's critique of what we might call neoliberalism or a kind of post-welfareist liberalism that emerged since the 1970s. Um, and I'll leave that to other panelists to also explicate or, or discuss in greater detail for the sake of, of keeping our comments short. But I think actually in one thing 
there, there's a tension that really can't be resolved. And if you think about actually the French election right now, and you think about Mélenchon on one end and Le Pen on the other end, Le Pen is talking about a welfare state, a very robust welfare state. Uh, Mélenchon is too. They're both Euroskeptics in many ways, which actually, at least from my left, I'm a little skeptical of that Euroskepticism. Um, but what I think really is distinctive between a Mélenchon and a Le Pen is the question of what their populism is after and what their economic nationalism is after and who the people are. And I think actually this is where the left and the right aren't going to be able to probably come to agreement. And I'm not proposing that the right on this side is that right. Uh, but there's a right out there that defines the people in very exclusive terms, that has a very distinct ethno-nationalist understanding of the people that are going to benefit from a social democracy. And the left doesn't have that. The left has an inclusive understanding of, of the people. Um, and maybe I'm creating an unfair binary, but I think that's really mm -hmm. a, a spot where Mélenchon and Le Pen are not going to ever get come together. Uh, and I think if you look at the difference, both Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump were complaining about the, the billionaire classes or, or agents and elites who are usurping the American people of popular sovereignty. But the, the difference is that the popular part of that is defined differently. Um, and so I think that on that end, that, that's a real difficult thing for any kind of consolidation between a right and a left. And I think you even see it with the Tea Party and Occupy as well to kind of come back to that, that question. Table already. Yeah, um, I would simply say that I think Baskar was correct uh, at the beginning of our panel when he said that uh, the right doesn't have quite the same kind of ethno-nationalism that you see in Le Pen and you see in France. And Americans are very confused about this. And I've written uh, recently for uh, uh, the week um, about uh, why um, you know economic nationalists and people who like uh, you know the kind of economic uh, populism. Uh, that we have uh, Donald Trump and others representing in America should not have sympathies for Le Pen. Um, Americans just do not understand the European situation, and that leads them into, um, you know, having a, you know, rooting on for someone like Le Pen. That's I think very, very dangerous. I can um, allude to two at least examples of uh, left and right cooperating on issues of trade. Uh, you, uh, my friends on the other side, may recall the uh, Battle of Seattle in 1999, which was against. Uh, you know, basically the whole neoliberal agenda that was going forward. And uh, Pat Buchanan was there. So, um, you know, that was an instance where there was some degree of... You make a shirt like that. <laughs> Pat Buchanan was there. And then also, uh, Ralph Nader uh, has been working on these issues, uh, you know, uh, for a very long time now. And Nader is very ecumenical. And he's reached out to me, he's reached out to a number of other conservatives who, um, you know, object to all sorts of things. I mean, you'd be amazed at what kinds of regulations, uh, what kinds of um, uh, sort of kangaroo courts, for example, are embedded in these uh, trade deals where basically um, sovereignty is being taken away from American courts and they're being placed into um, sort of international courts or various other kinds of special arbitration panels, which are undemocratic, something the left doesn't like and conservatives don't really like either, uh, and are also anti-national, which is something that conservatives in particular have a very strong objection to. So um, I would point to Nader as being you know, a great example of someone who works very diligently um, to bring together uh, progressives and conservatives who are concerned about the economy and especially concerned about uh, trade deals that are terrible for sovereignty, terrible for democracy alike. One thing that, that I, would, I would mention, just on, on the particular issue of trade, I think protectionism is not necessarily progressive and free trade is not, is not necessarily um, you know, a product of the right. So if you look at our 
best example of the left in power constructing a society, you would look to Scandinavia or you know, Sweden of the 60s and 70s. These were systems built heavily around uh, free trade. Um, so, so, and you know, and the actual model that we have of the least governing doses of socialism within capitalism, it is largely a free trade um, model. So, so I think that our stance should be kind of a more neutral that you know we should be for maybe some trade deals, but against many, including many of the the recent ones, and not kind of draw it in in these kind of absolute terms. But you know, I would kind of just to, to wrap up on my end, just say, you know, I like an analogy that um, the John Trickett, the British um, MP, made uh, about his constituency. And he's, he's an old, he's a member of the Labour left, um, one of the most left-wing members of, of the um, Labour parliamentary group. Uh, but he's also, um, you know, from a working-class background and in a working-class district in Leeds where 97 or, or something ridiculous percent of his constituency voted leave. And the way that he explained it, and I, and I do think the Brexit vote is, is complicated. I might have, uh, you know, I might have been tempted to vote leave myself if I was in Britain. I don't think it's as straightforward as manifestations of, of uh, right-wing populism like Le Pen is. But he said that his constituency feels like they're trapped in a runaway train, or at least a train that's moving faster and faster and they don't know what direction it's going into. They don't even know if there's a conductor. They didn't really like where they started off, but at the very least, that's kind of the known evil, so a lot of them want to go back there. And I would take that analogy a bit further and say, what would you do if you were on a train like that? Well, chances are you would look around to the people in the same car as you, and you might link arms with them and form some sort of solidarity with them. The task of I think real left-wing politics is to convince people that, in fact, they're right to do that, and they should look around, though, and, or at least imagine that even though there's no windows in this train, there's probably other cars, and there's probably other people in the same situation as them and the people in their, their car. Uh, that they have a vested interest, and they're going to the same destination as those people, so they have vested interest in, in going together. And I think what is ultimately different about the left wing and the right wing worldview, or the socialist worldview and the conservative worldview, is that we want people on this train to have some sort of direction in where it's going, but we kind of want to get there too, and we want it, might want to get there even faster. Um, I think, in many ways, the left isn't the negation of liberalism, it isn't the negation of modernity, it's kind of the completion of, of liberalism. It's a completion of the, like, values of the Enlightenment, the long frustrated values of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Uh, the, the fact that these ideas have maybe been frustrated by the limitations and constraints of, of class society, that maybe there's, there's a path of modernity uh, through other, other means, or at least that's our, our premise. So I think that's what's at core of our disagreement. And to the extent there is small c kind of conservative elements on, on the left, I'm not sure if they're really and at least the, the spirit of, of progress and modernity that I think is, is very intrinsic to at least the socialist left. Annette. I'm Annette Kirk, the uh, widow of Russell Kirk, and I was very pleased to hear you uh, speak today about his concern for unfettered capitalism, uh, which he was concerned for. He was also concerned very much about conservation, sometimes uh, that is not always looked at upon as a conservative uh, measure. 
But uh, this has sort of been deja vu for me because we were very involved in the 1960s uh, in all of that discussion, the early discussion between the early uh, radical movement at that point, which wasn't yet violent. And so we were at Big Bear in 1964 when we had was it Mario, Savio, and all those people. They were up there, and they were sitting there, sort of as you are in 1964, and saying some of these very sensible, uh, uh, kind of intelligent, uh, very well-spoken. And, uh, and we came away with this kind of a panel where we were all in agreement how we could agree and disagree very civilly. And then, of course, you know what happened in the 60s. And so I was very happy to hear you uh, mention Polanyi and that you didn't, which Russell always gave his students to read, and Robert Nisbet too. And I think we could agree on some of his uh, understandings of community. Uh, but um, I have not heard you speak about uh, uh, sort of organizing on the uh, style of Saul Alinsky. And how do you feel about that? Is that anything in your agenda, that kind of organizational? Are there any particular facets of it that you Well, I was thinking that Hillary was, um, you know, very keen and very much involved in the uh, kind of thing that Solinsky was teaching people about classes and, and about society and such and, and how to infiltrate uh, the society to change it. And I wondered if there was any of that kind of measure. Well, this is a new, you're all new perhaps now. You're young and, and uh, have uh, perhaps imaginative ideas. Maybe you and Winston Elliott can <laughs> cooperate again. Okay. Thank you. Bircher Sperlinski, I think I'm gonna start that. Yeah, if, if you wanna be the first Bircher Sperlinski, uh, I'll, I'll do make the website. Um, hmm. Well, you know, uh, the Alinsky comparison is an interesting one. I mean, um, it's funny, I went back to Rules for Radicals recently and I was reading it and I forgot how much of the book was just scolding 60s radicals for doing it wrong um, and uh, actually being alienating to most American people, you know, with their dirty counterculture and their hippie ways. Um, and it, it's a funny book in that sense. Um, I. Look, I mean, I think a lot of the organizing that you're seeing now, it ought to be very legible. I mean, people have certainly drawn lessons from Alinsky, who is a tremendous organizer. Um, but if you look at the different ways that people are organizing now, you'll see a, a very heavy media component. Um, if you look at the Movement for Black Lives, famously, you know, there's a tremendous social media presence, um, and this has good and bad qualities to it. Good in the sense that you can create a very sizable constituency without a geographical majority <laughs> wherever you are. Um, and that's been tremendously important. Um, it's very sophisticated in terms of how that movement communicates with the public and applies pressure that extends beyond the size of the people organizing it. Um, and I think many of the media techniques are, are the same in that you use an election to bird dog politicians and you use them as a platform for your message. I mean, I actually thought um, Black Lives Matter was very effective at this by um, jumping onto Bernie's platform right at the beginning um, and then jumping onto Hillary's platform or trying to, um, following Trump around because cameras go with the candidates and so the organizers go with them. And by the end of the campaign, both Democratic candidates and Donald Trump 
felt like they had to talk constantly about police violence. Um, and this is just very effective political organizing, but it's just one piece of it. That's a very media-centric piece of it. Um, the door-to-door -door organizing is, I think, happening. I mean, a lot of the groups that uh, came together around the Bernie Sanders campaign have decided to stay together and now are organizing around local elections. Um, where I, I live in New York and upstate, um, there are a lot of rural communities and there are actually a sizable number of Bernie voters. And so there are brand new organizations up there in Kingston, for example, um, that are sort of beginning to branch out and work in the communities that they already know. Um, and I, I guess I'm wary of this language of infiltrating. I think there are a lot of ways in which people who do political organizing can be made to seem other so that they can be knocked out of the picture. And so when Trump talks about paid organizers, for example, or rather paid protesters, um, I, I love this because first of all, I wish someone would pay me to go to a protest. Um, and let me assure you that is uh, not a, a thing I have ever been offered. Um, but also because we have organizations, institutions, where we pay staff people to organize. That's part of building a political movement. That's true on the right as well. Um, and that's okay. <laughs> and so the idea that anyone who is paid to do politics is somehow illegitimate is, I think, sort of a contrived way of picking off um, people on the left and declaring them illegitimate. I think similarly with the idea of infiltration, I mean, from much of the organizing I've seen, it's people going out and communicating with their communities, you know? And I think that frequently the right um, sort of reframes that in language of infiltration in order to make the left seem alien to America, to make it seem like a foreign agent. It's, uh, it's very Cold War. And I think this is something that is not as much of a concern or a language for young people, um, in part because there aren't quite the same historical anxieties. Yeah, let's please give a round of applause for our panel. That was the second episode of our two-part series on a panel about politics and journalism hosted by the Howenstein Center at our 2017 Conservative Progressive Summit. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Houndstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Houndstein Center is inspired by Ralph Louis Houndstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference, from which you just heard, challenges leading thinkers on the left, as well as the right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Houndstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit HoundsteinCenter.org, follow Houndstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at JoeHoganCGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.